welcome to Behind the Edit, a podcast that peeks behind the scenes and discusses the unexpected and often very personal victories, stumbles and detours on a path to building a creative brand and business. I'm your host, Christine Mankies, creative pioneer, award-winning photographer, founder of The Pretty Blog, editor, visual storyteller, problem solver, recovering workaholic, mom and dynamic dot connector. Over the next few months, I'll be sitting down with South African multifaceted designers and entrepreneurs to uncover their unique and at times zigzag journeys to build what seems like a perfectly edited brand. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Karen Ray Matier, the founder and creative mastermind behind Dear Ray, a handcrafted jewelry design studio based in Cape Town. As one of the first artisan jewelers in South Africa, Karen's journey to building her brand has been a real inspiration to observe from the sidelines. In 2010, with a BA Fine Arts degree from the University of Stellenbosch and a semester in Germany at the Fotsheim Hochschule in her back pocket, Karen started DRA as a 21-year-old, fresh graduate in her parents' home. More than a decade later, she now manages a team of 16 and creates the most exquisite jewellery pieces using precious and semi-precious stones, solid gold and sterling silver. As a loyal customer and fan since the brand's inception many years ago, it's incredible to reflect on how Karen and Dear Ray has evolved over the years. And under her open and honest leadership, Karen's team continues to delight as they constantly innovate and forge new creative pathways while being kind to the environment. But the one thing that inspires me the most is Karen's risk-taking nature. She's fearless in her pursuit to trying new things, not afraid to fail, and she gives new meaning to the sky is the limit, a remarkable and much-needed mindset for any creative pioneer. Karen, thank you so much for making time to come and see us. And we're so excited to have you on Behind the Edit. I think this morning was a very good example of entrepreneurship in its <laughs> rawest form, probably, having lots of technical glitches with the recording this morning. Which brings me to my first question. <laughs> what draws you to this crazy world of entrepreneurship and all the ups and downs that comes with it? Sure, that's quite a question. <laughs> I think by nature, I am a risk taker and I like pushing things to the limits. So I think I just love the feeling of just going for it and trying something new. And if it flops, it flops. And if it works, amazing. That feeling of like the sky is a limit really draws me in. So I think... That's what it is for me. So when you start with a project or when you initially started DRA, was that like a clear set idea that you wanted to do X, Y, Z to get to your destination? Or did you kind of just jump into it and you said, let's make this work? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think to be honest, I was so young. I mean, I was 21 at the time that I just kind of dived right in and started making things. And I had no fear around it because I didn't really have hectic living costs or too much pressure. So it was quite easy to just dive headfirst right in. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I didn't really have a set plan. No, I didn't have a business plan. I just started tinkering away and making things. Above my parents' garage was a little studio that I started in. So like I said, my costs were really low and I could just really experiment and play. And I think that was a very beautiful space to be in. And I feel very grateful for that space of just having no pressure and just going for it. Well, that's a great way to start. I think having mm. a little bit of a safety net, knowing that there's exactly. still bread in the kitchen, exactly. hopefully. Exactly. 
Well, having you here in the studio makes me go back all the way when we started The Pretty Blog in 2010. Mm. And I remember coming across your brand. I think it was Design and Daba, actually. I think a lot of my journeys with local designers have been across the Design and Daba platform and seeing you there in one of the upcoming designer spaces yes. <laughs> within the jewelry space. And the journey that Dear Ray has taken is so inspiring. So well done for everything you guys have accomplished. I feel like you guys are one of those iconic artisan jewelry brands. <laughs> you were probably one of the first to kind of do what you do in the way you do it. Take us back to the time where you finished university. I think you studied in the same department as me. Yes, were, I did. Were we Stand in the same March. year? I think you were maybe my sister's year or above my sister, yes. which was like two or three years above me, I think. I, I do like, remember you in the art department. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the art department days. Yes, exactly. So take us back to finishing varsity, getting your degree and from there forward, take us through the journey. Like okay, what great. happened? <laughs> <laughs> I distinctly remember it was like nearing the end of my fourth year when I went for a walk with my dad and I was like so excited to be ending and planning this long holiday. And he said to me, well, what are you talking about holidays? Like, <laughs> he's like, you have to start working. You have to get a job. And the idea of getting a job seemed quite daunting. And so I saw the Design Darba website and had a look at it and I saw they had like an up-and-coming designer space. So I was like, okay, this is going to be my like official launch of starting my own business and just going for it and this is what I'm going to do. Oh, wow. And so it was Design Darba. It was, yeah. <laughs> and I shared it with my friend Stephanie and I remember I was still making very sort of like university, very sculptural, big pieces that people couldn't really wear. And I remember very few people bought my jewelry and I just stood there observing what people were into and just actually people watching. People loved my friend Stephanie's jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very good start of understanding failure and understanding that when things don't go well, there's so much to learn. And I was very happy that it started that way because it really made me observe and understand how business works and how to read the market and how to position yourself and so I think it was a very good start. Yeah, maybe not as positive as I wanted it to be, but it was a good learning curve. That's so interesting yeah. that you mentioned about the, the sculptural pieces that you mm. created at Varsity. I think if you are in your kind of exploratory years, you know, where you explore all different options, playing around with so many materials. And I think a lot of creatives, when they start out, they're just playing around. Yes. You know, you have no idea what you're doing. You're hoping this is going somewhere. But taking that concept into a commercial space like Design and Darba, where you basically have to sell a product to clients, yeah, just learning from mm. like what they're actually interested in. And I think through my journey, I can really relate to that going on this journey of you want to create something and then there's like just no market for it. And exactly. <laughs> it takes me back to Ian and I. We started an online photography school many years ago that very few people probably know about. And it was like a subscription fee to be part of our online photography school. And I don't think people even understood the concept of like, what is a subscription? And we put so much money into that business, but luckily we killed it very soon. <laughs> so one learns, like, what is the industry interested in? And for you, standing there, what would you say did you take from that? Okay, this is what I need to do. What are the next steps? Now you've kind of put yourself out there. You've started a little brand, but you needed to make an income from it. <laughs> 
the first thing I realized was I need to separate myself from my product and from my brand and to realize that I can't take it personally. That was a very big thing for me. Wow, that's important. Yeah, and I think that really has served me throughout my journey. And then also just realizing to simplify things and to really look at like materials that, that will last, materials that people want to wear, and trimming down the materials that you use and not going so out there with so many different things, but looking at like, let me just use solid silver, solid brass to start off with. People can wear it every day and it lasts. Do simple shapes that don't hook on things <laughs> and things that take me quick to make, you know, that don't take so long so it's so expensive. So looking at price point, I feel like I did a little business course at Design Darbo, <laughs> analyzing everyone. And then I think the next market I did was Commerce for Skinker. And by then I had kind of adapted and really shifted my ranges and it went really well. So that positive response quite soon after was a very good kind of learning curve and very good feedback for me. Oh, wow. so that really informed kind of your next steps, exactly. like how to build it out. Exactly, yeah. How did you get to you running the business to now having a team of 16 people? As far as I know, you're 16. I don't yeah. know how, how COVID has <laughs> influenced that and we'll get to that. Just take us a little bit through that journey of like you and then all of a sudden this thing grows. Yeah, well, I think for me, having a jewelry business was always about empowering people and employing people. I think it's been a very big part of my passion around developing that in our country, because I feel like if we do have the privilege of having education, then why not empower others who don't? That was a very big driving force of DRA. Actually, after that first commerce for Skinker, I employed my first employee, Morgan, and she's still with me now. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't have a jewelry background and I trained her from scratch. Wow. So it's been amazing to see her doing so well now. I mean, she's working amongst goldsmiths and jewelers and she's really at their level doing so well. That was the start of it and we've kind of just grown from there. COVID, we had to retrench too, and they're back at work now. So, wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So were the first people you employed artisans that helped you make, or did you also employ marketing, any admin people? Like what was the flow of the team? Mm -hmm. So the first people I employed were artisans. I taught them how to make jewelry. That was the main focus was that I was doing all these markets and I needed quantity. I needed a production line. So my dad tried to help me a little bit and he says I was too strict with, what I, <laughs> with my colleagues control. So that didn't work. So that was the main focus for quite a long time. I then moved to the shop at the Woodstock Foundry and it was still just myself, Morgan and Raymond. And we were just focusing on making things. And to be honest, I didn't really have a business background. So I didn't have any systems in place. I didn't have an admin team at all. I didn't have a marketing team. I was taking photos. I'm terrible at taking photos. <laughs> I tried to build my own website. It was like, oh, I'd love to see it now. It was a disaster. <laughs> And then we were starting to sell at the biscuit mill. And then Amy, I met via another friend of mine and she started selling for me. And then she popped into the shop and started getting involved. And then the personality that Amy is got in board like full time. I remember we were doing design job and she was helping me sell. And I was like, do you just want to work for me full time after this? Because <laughs> she was just problem solving and making certain decisions. And it was just really great to have someone beside me who could make decisions and also run a team and come up with great systems. So she kind of got that part of the business going. And then we expanded with more people as we grew. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I think having someone alongside you to make decisions is really important mm. for entrepreneurs. I found that through a journey of you know, you kind of the front runner, you have to be the visionary, but you also have to be the person running the admin and making sure that the finances are there to pay everyone. But to just have someone that you bounce off. Exactly. Like, 
I feel like Ian is that for me in many ways, but also like in a business context in your own space. It's really good to have someone like that. Do you have any other mentors or people that you reach out to? Where do you find that kind of peer conversation happening or people that you can learn from? I have the privilege of having quite a few friends in the creative industry. So that was always my initial go-to. A lot of us were starting our own businesses and we kind of had these conversations around what are you doing? What systems are you using? How are you coping with HR and all of those things? And then along the way, I've come across some incredible mentors. I had a mentor for two to three years, which was incredible. She really gave me so much insight into leadership. And at the moment, there's a guy, his name is Godfrey, and he is looking at becoming a partner of DRA. And he's been mentoring me for the last year and a half to kind of understand how I work and for me to understand how he works. And that's been really incredible and really helpful. I'm learning so much from him, especially from a business perspective. That's amazing. Yeah. I think when I started out, I was so excited and naive about yes. starting anything, you know, that I didn't really take anything in anyone was saying to me because I was just on a mission. But the further I went on to this journey, I just became so much more open. And it seems like you also like have all these flows of information coming into the business and people that have an influence on the business. Tell me a bit more. How do you get inspired? You obviously have to create different jewelry collections all the time. Where does that inspiration come from and what is the journey for a collection to actually be birthed? So collections for me always start with a story or a narrative. So I'll be, I guess, like walking around in interesting towns or places or traveling or reading an interesting book or watching a great movie. And then as soon as I'm inspired by something, then I look at that and look at why it inspires me and take away that further. And then often a narrative is kind of born with brainstorming. I often chat to Amy, chat to my husband. And then I start sketching and playing around with ideas and feelings and colors. And then from there, the narrative is born. I mean, it often takes quite a long time. I then make wax pieces or metal pieces of jewelry and develop it further and further and further. And along the way, there are lots of people who get involved and give me their insight and input. And we kind of edit it and get it to where it needs to be. I'm so curious to know, like, how long is that process? You just mentioned it took quite a time, but I was just, just <laughs> I think, like, at the moment, I'm working on a range, and I started thinking about it from, like, November last year, and I think we'll only launch it in September. And then sometimes I'll just have this outburst of an idea and then I'm like, we need to launch it like next month. And then my whole team is like, no. <laughs> they bring you back yeah, to reality. Because yeah. I, I guess as I birth the idea and as I make things, I want to share it with the world. So it's yes. quite hard to realize, okay, there's a marketing team that, you know, we have to create, build stock. We have to create the models. You know, it, it takes time. Yeah, so. you don't want to put something out there and there's like 500 people that want it and you only have one piece. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I must say, I do love the spontaneity of just making something and then putting it out in the world, which I do for gifts for friends or if there's a special occasion, I'll just make something. And there's something so nice about it, it doesn't have to be repeated. It just goes out into the world and is enjoyed. You guys have had so many beautiful collections over the years. I remember when you came out with your first collection for men and there was soon after or before, there was a collection that I absolutely loved, the Shashe collection, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit more about that because I still remember the visuals. I know that it's many moons ago, yeah. but I looked on your website the other day because you won't believe it, but I lost those earrings that I had. Oh, no. And Amy told me that you guys have actually cut some of your collections because you have so many products already. So let's go back, even though you don't make it anymore. Tell us a bit more about that collection specifically and where it came from. 
So that collection, I also find is quite a special one to me. It started off from a trip we did to Botswana to a friend's farm. And she is also an illustrator. So it was a really beautiful raw farm. And there was a river running alongside the house called Shashe. So that's where the name comes from. And it was just this like complete immersion of this African landscape, which was so beautiful and so inspiring. And from there, we said, well, why don't we do a range together? So I designed all these pieces and then she did the illustrations for it. And on the lookbook, we kind of like introduced her illustrations on the models and we used it. I think, yeah, we did have a poster and it was really great just to do a collaboration like that where I obviously have the platform of making jewellery and kind of the metal outlet. And it was so great for her to illustrate the narrative and illustrate and capture that feeling that we had in the African bush. So I also loved that range. Oh, I really feel like you guys should redo that. <laughs> <laughs> like a little limited collection. <laughs> Maybe we can make you another pair of those earrings. <laughs> I just love them so much. So you bring out these collections, I'm assuming one or two a year, but then do you guys just end them at some stage or what's the thought process there? (laughs) Well, it just feels like we have too much on offer. And the idea with our pieces is that they are quite classic and timeless. So they could stay around for very long. But I think we do want to have a feeling of this is only around for so long and it's special and it's quite limited so that, you know, the market doesn't get completely flooded and people know that what they buy, there are only so many pieces of them around. And I think that's important. Yeah, I also think limits is good. Yeah, I also think so. We're not a mass production, you know, it's a handmade process. What is your take on artisan? What is your viewpoint like? What is artisan? Sure, artisan to me is people working with their hands and working with their creativity honestly and authentically. So really expressing what they feel and not only following trends, but also following their own creativity and I think we can be inspired by the artisans that have come and gone and I think there's so much rich history of artisans in our country that we don't actually tap into enough as inspiration but for me it's very important that each artisan makes that kind of creative space their own and explores their own creativity in it and expresses their true authentic creativity from it. I love that. Yeah. I love that. We need to quote that. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we can't talk about creativity and inspiration without touching on the idea of, I almost want to say, today's mass media, which is probably social media. Mm. And I know I've also read and come across many different opinions about the influence of social media as a creative form. Mm. I know you've also taken breaks from social media. Give us a little bit of insights into how do you personally experience and how do you see social media as a creative? So I think social media is an incredible and very powerful tool as a creative small business. It gives you the platform that we would never normally have. I mean, Instagram is really what built DRA to be what it is. Mm. So I do have a lot of gratitude towards it, but I also struggle with it. Mm, (laughs) I think I struggle with it in my personal life. And sometimes it brings in a sense of comparison, which I think always steals joy. And I think also in my own creative process, I really have to limit my access to Instagram and other platforms like Pinterest to be able to create authentically, which is what we just spoke about. Because I think we're so bombarded with so many things and it might not be your intention to copy or Mm. to reproduce, but your subconscious captures that. And then it's very difficult to connect with what you actually want to express, you know. So I find tapping out of it completely and actually being around nature is my greatest source of inspiration and the best way that I find 
my own real true source. And I think from that comes pieces that people connect with, not because it's necessarily on trend, but because it does have a story of a real process. Mm. I think it's such a difficult topic. It's really a tough one. Like you said, you struggle with it in your own life. It's almost like a clash of like, we need this, but we also, you know, we shouldn't allow it to take up so much time in our lives. Every December, when Ian and I go on holiday, I have this kind of like, just switch off kind of social media thing. And I have something I call, which is quite harsh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I read it in a book from another lady in the US where she spoke about social media slaughter. And it's such a harsh word, but it really like actually puts forward what needs to happen every now and again. I think we follow and follow and follow and you almost get bombarded by everyone else's life and their highlight reels and their creativity actually takes away from what you can create. So I go on this journey where I Mm -hmm. unfollow everyone (laughs) for a time. And it's been my process of just filtering what I allow into my life. And I'd really recommend that to everyone, like just to not be swayed by what everyone else is doing. But on the other hand, like you say, every small business needs an outlet to market, you know, so it's an amazing marketing tool. But I think we sometimes look at it as reality. Absolutely. And that I find problematic. I also think that it's not the tool that is the problem. It's the fact that we haven't learned to have boundaries as humans. 100%. And so the tool is the tool. It's just the way that we interact with it. And in a way, it's such a great teacher. The fact Mm. that it is such a struggle for each individual, it's such a great teacher to be like, what is it teaching me? How do I manage it? How Mm. do I create boundaries? And I think if you can learn those tools, like that'll serve you in so many other spaces. So yeah, we often like hate the social media and Instagram, (laughs) but it's just how to manage it, I guess. And that's the lesson in itself. Yeah, it's about a balance, right? Like we're all trying to bring some form of a balance into our lives. Yeah. And I know you've been through quite a journey, like personally, not just business related. And I just want to touch on that. I think it's so important for every creative and every entrepreneur to realize that there's life and it's messy. And there's lots of things that happen in the background behind every entrepreneur's Instagram. There's also people with lives. And I know that you went through a divorce quite early on. And why do you think that happened? And how did you kind of navigate this whole world of craziness that you were going through emotionally with running a business and being responsible for a team. What can you share with other creatives that would help them? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, to start off with saying that like going through all the pain and suffering has once again been my greatest teacher and such a gift actually. And I think it all unfolded as it did because like I said in the beginning, I'm a risk taker (laughs) and I dive in head first with most things. So in my 20s, I kind of just went for it. So I started my business, then I got married at 24, you know, just like had my own shop, had employees and went, 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 went. And then I think I did all these things without really understanding who I really was. And I did all these things to try to fulfill what it looked like or what was expected from me. And then when I had kind of the maturity, I think, to step back and really ask myself the hard question of, is this really the life that you want and are you really happy? The answer was no. So yeah, it took a hard, hard few years of unraveling and creating space for myself again. I created a world where everything looked perfect and everything worked for everybody else, but I wasn't happy in it. So I had to break down all those structures 
to start again, really. And yeah, it was a very beautiful process, a hard process. I have lots of tears <laughs> and frustration, but I think I managed to do it and managed to keep Dere alive because of the incredible team I have. I really could step away and kind of, you know, go through my process and they ran the ship. And I'm forever grateful for that. And I think it's really made us all stronger. And I also had to be really vulnerable with them about things that I was going through. And I think that created strong ties and a strong sense of loyalty that I think is carrying us still today. So, yeah. You were just really human with the people who worked with you. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's something that we should never yeah. forget. It's yeah. just like we're all humans. We exactly. all go through stuff. Have grace as you go along. Exactly. And I needed to learn those lessons. You know, I was quite naive and I didn't really understand how life worked or how hardships worked. And now my team knows that I've also gone through things that are hard. And so like we all do, they go through hard things in their lives and they know that they can be honest with me. So it's created a very beautiful culture of almost like a family structure where there's a lot of honesty and openness. And yeah, we back each other. We're there to support each other and... Or a team. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Through this um, supporting your family, <laughs> if I could say that, how did COVID affect you guys? I think it's such an interesting topic for small businesses. And it's obviously been a, a huge topic for all of us the past year. When lockdown happened and you guys obviously make things physically in a studio, what did the world of DRA look like for the next few months? Sure, it was quite a scary time, to be quite honest. I really didn't expect it to unfold as quickly as it did. And my husband is also an entrepreneur. So I remember one day, like us both going through this process of unraveling. You know, what do you do? How do you trim down costs? You've got all these overheads. I remember one day sitting next to him on the couch, we both looked at each other and just burst into tears because we both like, maybe we both just need to close down. You know, it wow. got to the point where we were like, can this continue? If there are no tourists and there's complete lockdown, what do you do? And so, yeah, I slowly kind of came up with a strategy and after the fear passed on, <laughs> I managed to come up with a strategy and I once again had very honest conversations with my employees. Yeah, we had to reduce hours, reduce salaries to, for a certain season and they were all on board, all supporting and navigated away, I must say, Godfrey. My mentor was really incredible with me, like really going through the business side of it and the financial side, because that was really the tricky part, you know, how do you keep that afloat? And that support was really, really helpful. And we've made it through. And it's been amazing to see how locals have really supported us. I think locals are supporting local, which is incredible to see. I mean, I really feel it so strongly now more than ever. And at the same time, when COVID hit, the gold price also went through the roof. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that went up by 30%. So we had to like inflate there. Everything just felt like it was happening all at the same time. But we managed to get through it and we've actually done really well this year. So, yeah, we're here still. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the important part, right? Yeah. That you guys are still around. Yeah. Is there anything that you feel COVID really informed like your team or your way of designing or your way of looking at the world. Like you said, pain is a good teacher, right? And I think COVID's also been a good teacher. Lockdown's been a good teacher. What have you taken out of that that you feel is different in your business now? 
So for me, the hardest part of lockdown was not being able to access nature, not having the mountain and the ocean. It's such a big part of my world. And then also just realizing what happens when we all stop, when the airplanes stop, when the trains and the cars and the buses stop. And, you know, that the earth had a break for a little while and realizing that it's a message to us that the way we've been living is not sustainable. So a very big thing for me was like, okay, so we've had this moment to pause and how do we change things now moving forward? And so a big thing is environmental impact of obviously mining and just producing and consuming. And how do I exist as a jewelry business and build a jewelry business that is empowering people locally and trying our best to be sustainable and giving back to NGOs where we can, but still the core of our business is taking from the earth, you know? Oh, yes. So that's been a very hard shift and a very hard kind of narrative for me to work around. But I've decided not just to quit and walk away from it, (laughs) but to rather use the platform and the space to make it better. So I'm still kind of working around that. And we are looking at lab-grown diamonds or reusing old antique diamonds and really trying to create a platform or a space where there is a product that does have a more sustainable and earth-friendly message. I think the fact that we use only solid metals and we, we recycle our metals, so the idea is that pieces last a very long time, is also sustainable. So we're trying to do our bit. But yeah, I guess in a world where we all consume, it's tricky. Like, how do you live in a world and try to save the earth at the same time? So that's kind of been my big narrative and lesson from COVID and kind of what I'm, I guess, trying to work around. I'm excited to see where this goes because it sounds extremely interesting. Yeah. And I think it would be very interesting for people since you've touched on the fact that you guys do purely solid metals. And actually, I'm the one ring I'm wearing here is my 10-year anniversary <laughs> ring that Ian got made for me. Year five already, so turn by year 10. <laughs> I would like to have an eternity band from DRA. So that was on the list for many, many years. But for jewelry lovers, and I think there's so many different options out there from like costume jewelry to beautiful antique pieces. And I don't think everyone knows all the ins and outs of the jewelry business. You obviously being an expert, I think it would be very interesting for you to just explain to people what is the difference between a solid metal and a plated? Because we do see a lot of plated going around. Like what is the difference and what can people expect when buying either? Because obviously there's also quite a big price difference. Yes, yeah, no, plating is much more affordable, which is also great because it gives the market access to great jewelry and handmade jewelry. So solid metal, and I decided this from the beginning when I first started that I was never going to plate. Okay. (laughs) So So you have to stick to it. Yeah. (laughs) So solid metal will mean that from the surface of the ring throughout the core, it's completely solid. So that whole piece is made out of pure silver or gold or brass. And then plating will obviously often have a base metal of like silver, and then they'll dunk it in a solution where it's like an electronic process where it plates a gold solution onto the metal. So it'll have a thin layer of gold on it. So almost like a coating. A coating, exactly. Okay. And so if you wear it, you have to just be careful because it could weigh down over time. And it's just a different way of looking at your jewelry. So that could be a piece that you would wear for occasions and look after in a more specific way, whereas solid jewelry, you don't have to be as careful with it because it's solid all the way through. And I think that's what I really love it is because I do hike and I surf and I'm quite a hands-on person. And I don't really want to like mix up my jewelry all the time. I kind of wear what I wear every day and I design for everyday wear. I think that's why I went that route 
I also love the idea of it being passed on from one generation to the next or being remelted down and reused, which you can do with solid metal. So it's a little bit more hard-wearing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you touched on you surfing. I'm curious to know your hobby side. Like, I think if I had to imagine you being quite excited about the hobby of jewelry, you know, when you started out, and I think with any entrepreneur, your job soon becomes quite intense and it doesn't really flow into being a hobby anymore. So what are your hobbies? How do you take time out? I feel like you're always so calm and collective. Like when I see you and I speak to you on the phone, you're always so calm. Share a little, like where do you get the calmness from? (laughs) That's so funny because I don't see myself as calm. (laughs) But I think I learned very early on, again in my 20s when I was going full steam ahead, that I needed to look after myself. So with the divorce and everything unraveling, I definitely didn't look after myself. And then I made it a priority to do the things that I love and make time for the things that I love. So surfing is one of those things which is a great release for me. It's definitely a space where I've learned the most about pushing through challenges and just kind of going for it. And then alongside things like hiking and yoga and time out with friends and family, it's really important to me. And my husband now always says to me, we don't love to work, we work to live. So like he always said to me, why do you work so hard? <laughs> like, let's go have some fun. <laughs> so having that in my life is really great because it's really a reminder to me to enjoy my life first. And then I guess the creative process and the energy I bring to my team is much more wholesome and much more true. Your job or your day-to-day should actually serve your lifestyle, not the other way around. Absolutely. It's actually sad that we only learn that like 15 to 20 years in, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Karen, do you still make jewellery yourself or are you more involved just with the vision and the design and where things go? So I love being at the bench. So yes, I definitely still make jewellery. What I do is when I'm designing the new range, I I make the first pieces. So I do the prototypes and I experiment and do quite a lot of bench work then. And then once I finish the first pieces, I then teach my team to make that. So I don't spend as much time as I'd like to at the bench. I still do a lot of admin and other business-related things. But yeah, I definitely could never not have that aspect. I just love the creativity and the process of, yeah, it's quite messy and dirty. And like, you know, you cut your finger and you go for it. (laughs) I'm a tomboy at heart. So I love that feeling of just like hammering something (laughs) and fire and going for it. So yeah, I think it'll always be. I also want to like hammer things and use fire. (laughs) Yeah, it's really fun. And it's, yeah, I think it's always been a creative outlet for me since I was 10, you know, so I think it'll always be a part of my expression. So sitting at the bench sounds extremely fun. I would love to try that one day. (laughs) You should. (laughs) I think the entrepreneurial journey is also fun, but it has its ups and downs. And I remember part through kind of creating businesses, you always have this hope that you'd go from the messiness to some form of structure, that there's just at least one thing (laughs) that is a little bit more stable probably. And I think starting out I'm quite curious to know how you segued from going from a stand to a brick and mortar store. And I would assume that a lot of entrepreneurs would imagine that the brick and mortar store is kind of where it's at, you know, (laughs) and that's when sales will flow in. (laughs) I thought that too. (laughs) So tell us a bit more about how you made that decision to actually start a physical space. And I know you've also moved spaces as far as I know. Tell us a bit more about that and where you guys are located at the moment. 
So my dream was always to have my own shop and workshop. So when I was at the market stands, that was always kind of my focus. So I moved on quite quickly to the Woodstock Foundry where they were creating spaces where you could see the artisan process as well as the retail shop to go alongside it. And I loved that idea because, like I said earlier, I love the messiness of the bench work. And I wanted to just open that up to the audience and show them what the process is and show them that when they buy this piece, it comes from a handmade process and they can see the people that make their pieces that they love. So for me, that was kind of my end goal. And so quite soon after, I think it was like two years after I started, there was a space available and I actually sat down with Luke from Peterson and Leonard and we designed this beautiful studio shop which exposed the process and yeah we opened it up and always had these visions of me just also like you said that perfect clean in your shop and everything's going smooth the perfect going outfit well. and yeah. perfect Pinterest picture yeah. <laughs> but actually it's like disaster messy ah where's this where's that um so we started off there and that space was incredible it really served us we expanded to the next door space and then we went upstairs and then to the next door space upstairs so we moved from one space to four spaces oh within I think four or five years and people loved seeing the process you know they really connected to the fact that it was handmade and locally made and then it just felt like I'd kind of done my time in Woodstock and I needed to move to a new space and I was walking down Bree Street one day and kind of looking around and then I saw this beautiful corner building diagonally opposite Jason's with the for rent sign on it. And I never really thought that I could, you know, access Bree Street or that kind of level of retail. And it wasn't that expensive. I think it was a time where they were trying to fill spaces and it was in the right space at the right time. Um, and it felt like the next move and we moved there. Unfortunately, our workshop isn't exposed to the public. I think my manufacturers and goldsmiths are quite happy. They were like, <laughs> everybody watches us all the time. We just <laughs> want to be normal. <laughs> so yeah, we moved into a space which definitely felt more luxury and more high end and more tourists could access us. And that was like the next retail dream. And then COVID hit. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and then we had these big overheads and we just settled in and we went Bree Street, but nobody could come to Bree Street. <laughs> so that was very interesting. And then it moved into the online space. And the online space was really what saved us during COVID is that people just supported us online and we could still function as a business. So still today, I mean, our breezy space is open again and it's so great to have a hub and a space where we all meet and make things. And I really am proud of the space and I love it, but we don't have as many visitors obviously because of COVID, but maybe that'll come back. But it's also really shifted my vision of the retail being the end pinnacle, the final goal and realizing that it's actually so much bigger than that. And that's just one aspect of the brand and of the space. So the idea of going bigger, you know, I think is also probably part of the entrepreneurial journey. So yes. you go from the bench, you go to the market, you sell something, you go to retail and it's always going bigger and bigger. But it's interesting how retail has changed and how, you know, you just mentioned like digital is quite a big thing. And digital, I think, was also very highlighted during COVID where people can't access physical places and spaces. And recently you guys launched something called DRA World. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, it's a very <laughs> exciting new project. I would say, you know, they always say, what is your business pivot for COVID? <laughs> <laughs> I would say DRA World is my business pivot. Because <laughs> I think realizing like, oh my gosh, we're not having tourists in our country for the next year thinking how am I going to access this market because I do solid silver and solid gold and 
often those prices with solid gold aren't really accessible to the local market, if I'm very honest. So how do I access like a greater market um, and still keep the production local? And I've always wanted to go global. I think that's an entrepreneurial, like I said, that pushed <laughs> the next level. And this was kind of my chance to give it a go. And we decided to, instead of just having shops in Europe or in the UK where we stuck, rather taking it into our own hands and reproducing the model that we did in South Africa and doing it slowly and organically in the UK space. So we actually launched a separate business and a separate online store, which serves the UK, Europe and US. And we have stock in a fulfillment center. So what happens is people can shop online there and then the order goes to a fulfillment center and the stock is pulled from there and the customers get their orders sooner. They don't have to worry about customs and charges. And it's just a much more seamless process. And I guess it's a way of like building a DRA presence internationally and just giving it a go and seeing if it can work. But yeah, I talk about small fish in a very big pond. <laughs> I feel like we're starting all over again and it's a whole new world and I feel very small and insignificant, but it's kind of great. And it's really nice to be able to do it again now that I'm older and to kind of learn from my mistakes and to once again, just give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine. You know, then we've tried. It seems to be going really well. I've got two partners there who are South African, but living in the UK who are running it for me. And it's been really fun. There have been some great projects that have already come from it. And yeah, it's gaining traction slowly. I love how you like move into one thing and then to the next. And <laughs> like you said, you just dive in head on without being afraid. Yeah. And also not being afraid to fail. I think that's very important that I take from this is to just take things on. And sometimes things will work and it will stick and sometimes not. I'm very excited to see where this goes globally. Thanks. <laughs> I'm also excited to hear about the archives of DRA, of all the products that didn't see the day of light. <laughs> Tell us a bit about the products that you have created or the designs that you didn't put out into the world. Sure. Uh, is there any particular product that you want to tell us about? Oh, there are so many. <laughs> so many where I'm like, I often present to Amy and then I say, I know you're going to think this is a little bit whatever, but I'm ahead of the market. Like, <laughs> this is going to be here. You'll see. I mean, there are a few pieces that she's like, no, Karen, that looks like someone's organ. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's just so many pieces that I've had to create and then played further and pushed it further to get to a piece that actually is wearable and people enjoy. And when you are in that rabbit hole of like creating and making, you do make all sorts of weird shapes and things because <laughs> you're experimenting and playing. And from there, you have to edit out. So yeah, I can't think of a specific one, but there are lots of flops. Well, not flops, just pieces that never got out there. And there's a whole drawer full of them. And I think I want to keep them one day and maybe one day my grandchildren can play with them. <laughs> I love that. I yeah. love that. It's like a little treasure trove of products that never saw the day of light, exactly. but they're little once-off pieces. Exactly. And who knows, maybe they'll be really like ahead of their time <laughs> for another time. <laughs> one day it will be very trendy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Karen, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us, sharing the ups and the downs and the sad parts and the good parts and all the areas that you're taking risks and for not being afraid and also for being a front runner. I think that's something I've always looked up to you in the jewelry space. You're probably one of the first brands I think of because you've come such a long way and also because we know each other from varsity yes. years <laughs> and so many 
paths have crossed along the way. And it was really an honor to have you in the studio today to record your story <laughs> and share that with the world. Thanks for being such a great inspiration. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, you also inspire me likewise. It's been amazing to watch your journey too. And yeah, I'm so excited about this space and this platform. The local edit is just exactly what the local industry needs. So thank you for doing that. Thanks so much. If you're enjoying Behind the Edit, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and don't forget to leave a review. For those who are curious, Behind the Edit is part of a larger drive to uplift our local design industry and sister company to The Pretty Blog. If you'd like to follow what we're building, please visit thelocaledit.com and sign up to stay in the know. And as always, please keep spreading the local love on social media by following and tagging The Local Edit on Instagram. I'm Christine Mankies and you're listening to Behind the Edit.